Pasa Mufasa, Shalom, Salam Aleikum, Ni Hao Konnichiwa, What's up, everybody? Good morning. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Today we've got Dr. Claire Malone on the podcast, and this was a very unique episode in that we recorded it asynchronously, with Claire providing automated voice transcription replies to my questions using a communication aid. Claire has a PhD in particle physics, an appointment at the University of Cambridge, and a recent stint studying particle physics at the one and only CERN Research Lab in Switzerland. I'm going to let Claire fill you in on the rest right now. Thanks for riding with me. Please consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. Let's rock. Que pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, Dr. Claire Malone. I've been really inspired by your work as I've recently started following what you're up to in the scientific community, including psychedelic science. And I can't wait to learn more about your mission to make science more inclusive and accessible. So let's start off with some background context about who you are and what you're up to. What's your personal mission statement as a psychedelic scientist, Claire? Hello. Thank you for inviting me, Dennis. I am a science journalist and inclusion consultant which means my role is to make scientific research and news engaging and accessible to audiences that may not have easy access to it. My interest in the field of psychedelic science arose from considering the challenges associated with communicating the background research to an audience that could have a lot of preconceived ideas, as can also happen in other scientific fields, such as artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. I enjoy employing my science communication experience to assist researchers in these fields to develop the most effective techniques to present their findings to the public. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, how did you get where you are today? And what is your particular area of focus as a psychedelic scientist promoting inclusiveness and accessibility? My background is originally in fundamental physics. I hold a PhD in high-energy physics from the University of Cambridge for my research into finding evidence for new particles using the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, at CERN. You may have seen it on the news when they discovered the Higgs boson. The 10-year anniversary of this momentous discovery was celebrated last year. I have a physical disability, cerebral palsy which means I have difficulty using a pen or keyboard and walking unaided. I have had my physical disability since birth. It means I have difficulty controlling my muscles, and hence I use an electric wheelchair to get around, and a specialized joystick to operate computers. It also means that unfamiliar listeners can find my voice difficult to understand at first which is why I am using this computerized voice to speak to you today. As I have always had my disability, there was not a particular point in my education where I had to adjust to a new way of working, i.e., from the time I started school I was learning how to negotiate my education with a disability. This can be a very different experience to someone who acquires a disability later in life. Hence. I have always had to think a little differently from other people about how to access my research and education. I dictate the majority of my work to an assistant, as although I can type with my joystick, 
completing all my work in this way would be too slow to be practical. The idea of dictating equations and code may sound strange if you have never had to do it before, but if you have been doing it throughout your education, you find techniques to make it work. This is how I conducted my research at CERN. The main aim of CERN is to develop an understanding of the universe in terms of its fundamental building blocks, or particles. Over the last century, particle physicists have developed a framework that describes the behavior of the fundamental particles. This framework is called the Standard Model of Particle Physics, or SM for short. The SM provides us with a coherent description of the known particle content of the universe, and, with the discovery of the Higgs boson, we have observed every particle it predicts. The values of its theoretical parameters have been seen to agree with experimental measurements to a remarkable level of accuracy. So, some people may ask if particle physics is now just a question of improving the accuracy of our comparisons between theory and experiments. This certainly isn't the case. Unfortunately, the SM does not provide us with a complete description of the particle content of the universe, and one of the main aims of the LHC is to remedy this. We know the SM does not provide a complete description as for a start it only actually explains the particle content of 4% of the universe, having nothing to add about the remaining 96%. We know this, as the observed rotational velocities of huge groups of stars, called galaxies, suggest that their total mass is far greater than can be accounted for by just the matter that emits light. This missing mass is called dark matter and is predicted to account for 23% of the matter of the universe. The SM can offer no suitable explanation as to the character of this dark matter. In addition, the unexpected discovery that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, rather than decelerating due to gravitational attraction, points to the existence of a previously undiscovered force acting against gravity on a universal scale. This force, which accounts for the remaining 72% of the universe, and is now known as dark energy, also has no explanation within the SM. A possible solution to some of the problems of the SM, is offered by a theory called supersymmetry, or SUSY. SUSY predicts a supersymmetric particle for every SM particle, and this is particularly interesting, as some of these particles could make up dark matter. During my PhD, I focused on searching for evidence of these particles. In practice, this meant analyzing vast amounts of data from CERN, to find telltale signs of particles not behaving as they should, which could be evidence of a new type of particle that we haven't seen before. As I did not receive the Nobel Prize for my PhD, unfortunately, this means that under the conditions that my group were looking at, we did not find evidence of new particles. The fact that CERN has not found the missing pieces of the standard model so far, is not a reason to lose hope, that we are not going to understand the basic building blocks of the cosmos fully. Actually, I think this is perhaps the most exciting time to be conducting fundamental physics, as we have so much left to discover.
However, something that I did discover during my PhD was that I really enjoyed crafting words that told the story of my research, more than I enjoyed crafting computer code to analyze data. Communicating my research to different audiences was a pleasant relief from dealing with the coding, which undoubtedly often didn't behave in the way that I wanted it to. Awesome. So you've been doing this deep dive into particle physics, way above my pay grade, and pursuing your inquiries at CERN, which is so impressive. A lot of what you're working on requires a highly specialized vocabulary and scientific disposition, and that seems to get lost in translation to people like me and the general public. It's my understanding that you've begun working towards bridging that gap and helping people outside of the scientific establishment and academia to better understand the fundamentals of scientific research and how science is relevant to everyone, not just the particle physics crowd. And as an extension of that, you're giving public lectures and talks with the aim of helping people connect with the sciences. How did you get started doing that, and what exactly are you up to in this regard? Exactly. I started by delivering talks to student-led groups and conferences. This included conferences such as the LGBT STEM MINA, a conference which focuses on showcasing the research of marginalized groups in STEM, which led to me being invited to give a TED talk. In the UK, a few years ago, there was a study conducted by the Institute of Physics, Royal Astronomical Society and Royal Society of Chemistry, to investigate the environment for LGBT plus people working in the physical sciences. The report demonstrated that in these fields, there is a feeling or culture, which promotes the idea that aspects of an individual's personality are irrelevant to their ability to follow the scientific method. Amid this culture, LGBT plus individuals may be inclined not to make their sexuality known to their colleagues, having judged it to be irrelevant to their work. But this clearly doesn't work. If you think about it, could you really do your best work, if you were constantly watching what you say, or how you react to everything, in order to hide a major part of your identity, for fear of harassment and discrimination? Again in this context, I saw the importance of the use of language in overcoming barriers, and using good communication techniques, to create a welcoming environment. For example, this could be observing someone's preferred pronouns, and considering the wording of policy documents, to make them more inclusive by using the word partner, instead of husband or wife. The discussions I participated in around the inclusive use of language, and techniques for effective science communication, also meant I was invited as one of the keynote speakers, at the Public Awareness of Research Infrastructures Conference, which took place at the Jardrell Bank Telescope Array, last year. Hence, it was through thinking about how we apply science communication techniques to make science accessible to marginalized groups, that I became interested in analyzing how we effectively communicate research on areas that the audience could find controversial, such as psychedelics. In this field, again I see that the use of language is important in working towards its increasing mainstream acceptance, given its ties with popular culture. In this case, 
I think that language can be an important tool for increasing the legitimacy of the research in the public size. To give a specific example, scientists engaging in the communication of their research should refer to the scientific names of substances, rather than street names, e.g. MDMA, not ecstasy or molly. We have seen an increase in companies specifically designed to handle public relations in the psychedelic field. However, the topic of public relations for science is certainly not unique to this field. For instance, if we consider the approach taken by a press officer attached to a lab or a university, their publications will generally highlight the successes and the importance of the research of the academics they are representing. On the other hand, a science journalist writing for a newspaper or magazine has a slightly different role. Their job is not only to present new results to educate the public, in fact many science journalists would say this is more of a secondary aim. Instead, part of the role of the science journalist, it could be argued, is to interrogate the researchers on behalf of the readers in order to check that any public money that is funding the research, is being used productively. It should also be remembered that, science journalists are looking to maximize their audience, and a reliable way of achieving this is to write about a scandal, that is to amplify something that was unsuccessful, or possibly dangerous in the research, rather than promote the benefits and progress. Fascinating. So, how do public relations techniques fit into the scientific canon's approach to communicating with the general public. All fields of science, to some degree, are making use of PR techniques to capture the interest of the general audience and to justify the funding they receive. Even in my own field of particle physics, experiments at CERN are criticized in the press for being too expensive, considering that they haven't yet found evidence of new particles when public money could be spent on addressing global challenges, such as climate change and avoiding the next pandemic. On this point, I have argued for the benefits of research in fundamental physics, pointing out the vast amount of technological applications, whose development is made possible by this research, such as much of modern electronics and the Internet. In a similar vein, I think as the psychedelic boom is just beginning to take off, this is a really exciting time to be looking at the communications techniques here. During my recent trip to San Francisco to speak at the RSA conference, I had the pleasure of discussing techniques to communicate the therapeutic potential of psychedelics with Ian Bollinger, working at HIFI Labs and the Center for Mycological Analytics. His work centers on providing data on the psilocybin content of various strains of psychoactive mushrooms, in a form that is easily accessible to the general public. Particularly with the rise in popularity of microdosing, this work is crucial so that people can avoid inadvertently macrodosing their microdose. With this in mind, the Center of Mycological Analytics have developed hands-on workshops to teach people how to determine the psilocybin content of mushrooms for themselves. Disseminating scientific knowledge and analysis techniques to the general public, 
also demonstrates how citizen science has a really important role to play in facilitating the conversation about the role of psychedelics. Ian made the point that, in a developing field such as this, people can be very quick to point out the mistakes and dead ends, whilst ignoring the rapid progress and successes. Therefore, he is motivated by creating room for people who are inquisitive to explore his research findings, in settings such as the workshops organized by the Center for Mycological Analytics. This approach is echoed by Dr. Bera Yaza Klozinski, the chief scientific officer at the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. She points out that, Although there has been a lot of progress in the last few decades in understanding the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, the research is still very new. More research and data is needed to complete our understanding of their mechanisms of action on the human brain, and to continue refining treatments based on these substances. Berra suggests that scientists working in this field can best contribute to public discourse by publishing the outcomes of clinical trials they conduct. The way I like to look at the psychedelic industry is as a fascinating showcase for many different science communication techniques. The whole range can be seen, starting from individual researchers discussing their findings in public forums and developing counter-arguments to display people's negative preconceptions. Then there's organizations developing citizen science programs to empower and educate people at a grassroots level. This is an area that is literally being taken into people's homes and impacting their health decisions in a very direct way. Finally, there's the more traditional form of science communication in the format of peer-reviewed scientific articles presenting the results of clinical trials. You've got all of this going on. You've won me over. What are you working on right now that we can look forward to in the next six months? I am going to continue offering my expertise as a communication consultant, for example to those working in psychedelic science, so that scientists can share their research with a wider range of audiences, with the goal of increasing understanding and reaching those who they have previously not been able to engage with. If you'd like more information, please visit my website, drclairemalone.com, and really don't hesitate to get in touch. In addition, I am encouraging further conversations between the public, researchers, and maybe even policy makers through my reporting of the advances in this very rapidly evolving and exciting field. Over the next few months, I am speaking at a number of science communication events, including a workshop for graduate students at ConSciCom New York next month. The details of my articles and speaking engagements can also be found on my website drclairemalone.com. And apologies for the shameless plug. Don't you just hate it when people do that? Once again it's drclairemalone.com. This has been a gratifyingly phenomenal experience. I'm very grateful that you would take the time to join us on the Mycopreneur podcast today, Claire. So thanks for coming on the podcast and have a wonderful day. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog 
while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com, or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.